This is the Endangered Species Podcast, the podcast by aspiring men for aspiring men. From Phoenix, Arizona, I'm your host, Sean Vollendorf. We're here to get the godly man off the endangered species list. Members of the endangered species herd, today we're talking to Aaron Wren. Aaron is a fascinating man. By day, Aaron has built a storied career. From partner at world-renowned consulting firm Accenture to now, as a highly published and sought-after urban analyst, his work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, UK, The Washington Post, Houston Chronicle, too many places to name. But then there is Aaron Wren by night. By night, Aaron is the masculinist. He's a godly Christian man and a deep thinker who writes prolifically on the topics of masculinity and godly manhood. He pens a newsletter and hosts a podcast by that name, The Masculinist. Aaron is Ivy League smart, and he's got some different perspectives on godly manhood from anyone really that I've come across. One of my rules for reading manly, godly stuff is I want to make myself feel challenged. And that is exactly what happens to me when I'm reading Mr. Wren. And that's what's going to happen to you when you hear him talk. Cheers. I found your article, Nine Reasons Why Detroit Failed. And even, <laughs> you know, even for someone who's never been to Detroit or, or gave much thought to urban decline, I got to tell you, bud, I found it fascinating. What, what, what was the professional path that took you to your current work? You know, it's interesting. That actual article was not written by me. I published it on my website. It was an unknown um, guy who was an urban planner in Chicago that I really liked. And he wrote it and I put it up and it became the most popular thing I ever put up on my website. <laughs> it, it actually launched his career. Pete Saunders, great uh, urban thinker. He's now a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and a columnist for Governing Magazine. And uh, I, I feel uh, very honored and privileged to have helped to launch his career. I used to do more publishing of other people's stuff uh, than I do my own. But I actually uh, started out actually in the uh, consulting industry. When I came out of college, I went to work for the company that's now known as Accenture. Yep. Did technology consulting work basically for about 15 years. I'm kind of a tech guy at heart. Um, I'm one of these people who like to spend a lot of time uh, in my free time. Uh, just coding, like working on open source type software, or just doing other hacking on computers. Always liked technology and so made a career out of that. Uh, but I always had very diverse interests. And as I got along in my career at Accenture, uh, towards the end of it, I started writing a blog about cities called the Urbanophile, the lover of cities. I'd always been a prolific message board junkie. And so <laughs> I had found myself in my spare time kind of arguing with people about uh, urban development in places like Chicago and Indianapolis. And I really realized I had a unique voice and was saying things about these places, particularly these Midwestern cities that uh, were so overlooked by people on the coast that I thought there might there might be something there. So I started a blog. Uh, and, and keep in mind, this was before, you know, when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, like the whole world starts looking at the Rust Belt. Right? I started looking yeah. at the Rust Belt back in, in 2006. You were looking at the Rust Belt before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and, and I think some of the disruptions we've seen politically show a lot of the challenges that came out of uh, ignoring the Rust Belt and not thinking seriously about its problems. So that's yeah, what I wanted really. to do. I, I started this blog. It was published under a pseudonym, uh, basically, and it took off and became very, very popular. 
And I said, you know, maybe there's kind of a career here for me in this. I really feel like I've got something to say. And so I, I ended up leaving Accenture and said, let's take an entrepreneurial leap into the unknown in order to try to uh, professionalize this. Now, I, I will say that turned out to be a much longer and more arduous uh, path than I, I ever would have thought. Um, as I, I would say, uh, you know, when I was on the other side of it and I, was, I, I got a job ultimately as I'm a senior fellow at, at a think tank called the Manhattan Institute in New York, and I worked there for about five years. And, you know, when I was working in New York at this think tank and, and getting published in the news and all that stuff, I said to myself, you know, I'm glad I did what I did, but if I'd actually known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. It's one of those things like, I'm glad I did that, but I don't ever want to do that again. Although right. I, essentially I sort of, I sort of did do it again because, um, you know, I, I started, I also, um, you, you know, started the masculinist essentially as a, as a newsletter. It's a newsletter about Christian men's issues. Um, within the last five years or so, as I really saw these kind of secular men's gurus taking off and acquiring enormous audiences. And yeah. uh, I'm like, you know, the church is not attracting men. Jordan Peterson's attracting men. The pickup artists are attracting men. Uh, you know, the alt-right is attracting men. All these people are attracting men. Where's the church? We need Long before that, you know, Louis Farrakhan. Yeah, Louis Farrakhan. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, I think it's well known, you know, you know, in, in the black community, you know, Islam has really done a great job, uh, not just Nation of Islam, but, all, you know, also mainline Islam has done a great job of uh, attracting men. And so, um, you know, I want to go into that. And then also uh, through a very long uh, journey, uh, you know, I, I don't think we'll have time to go into today. Basically, I, I sort of applied the church's teachings on men and relationships with women and things like that, discovered basically they don't work. And hmm. the things they were telling me just really weren't accurate. And after a sort of, I, I went through a process of rebuilding everything about who I am as a man, sort of not just in theory, but also in practice. And it was, you know, it, it took several years uh, to really do this. And I got to a point where I said, now I feel like I can share what I've learned and put into practice with others. And so I launched this newsletter. You know, one of the things that I established in, in the newsletter is, uh, you know, I've sort of been a little influenced by Nassim Taleb, uh, you know, who wrote The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile and books like that. And his concept of skin in the game, I mean, it's not his concept, but it's like skin in the game says, if I'm giving advice to other people, which I'm very, very loath to do, you'll notice I don't necessarily say you should do this. I say, let me tell you what I'm doing, or let me tell you some things that you might consider, you know, but ultimately it's your judgment about what to do. Uh, I got so much advice that turned out very poorly for me, even when it was good advice, that it made me very loath to give advice. <laughs> but I said, I'm only going to tell if I say, think about doing X, it better be something that I'm doing or have done, or at mm. least am, am moving in that direction. So at least I'm exposed to the risk of my own recommendations. I think too often you have people out there who kind of give you advice about what to do or you know, have all these prescriptions for life, but they're not necessarily doing any of it themselves. I'll tell you, as a reader, I would describe the masculinist newsletters as exhortational observations. I may steal that phrase, exhortational <laughs> observations. That's good. <laughs> that, that, that's really, and one of the things I like to do, you know, um, is give people tools to 
think about, you know, their life maybe in a new way. And this is really the, you know, my city work and I guess the masculinist work, a lot of it draws on my consulting heritage, right? Where a lot of times like a CEO comes and hires a management consultant to make recommendations. They aren't always necessarily looking and generally speaking, consultants don't come in and say, you should do X. You know, consultants, typical strategy project goes like this. We spend a third of our time figuring out what the actual problem is. We spend a third of the time kind of figuring out the solution set and then kind of the third uh, half of it, third third of it, figuring out how to communicate that. And then we sort of lay out the facts and you give people the tools that they can use to make their own decision, often with options. People don't want to be necessarily told what to do. And, and so we live in kind of a crazy world today where a lot of the things that we thought we knew, a lot of the scripts that we thought work in life don't necessarily work anymore. And so, you know, the political scripts aren't working like they used to, for example, but even things like college, it used to be, you know, I, I graduated from high school in 1988 and in the eighties, the message was you have to go to college. Manufacturing is dying. You know, the only way you're going to have like a great, you know, great career is to go to college. Everybody should go to college. And I went to college and I came out with no debt and I got a good job and the 90s were very good. Well, now today, the, the same message is going out there. Only today, young people going to college, are, many of them are taking on huge amounts of debt. The jobs are not necessarily there because we've lived in a very weak economy since 2000. And this idea, just go to college, get on the career ladder. It, that script isn't necessarily working anymore for people. You you just became Sean's best friend. <laughs> Aaron, I tried to talk. I have three sons. I tried to talk my older two out of college. They had a relative willing to help them significantly financially. I said, take the money, run, invest, and start a business. <laughs> yeah. I have a three-year-old, and my aspiration for him is that he will not have to go to college. I do think that today... Um, a college degree is essentially a necessary credential yeah. still to enter certain uh, parts of, of the job world. And there are a lot of jobs where you actually need an Ivy League degree to even really think about succeeding at the highest level. We, we live in a highly credentialistic society um, in, in a lot of ways. And I think we, you know, before my son can really um, think about not going to college, you know, we have to have some sort of a, um, I think a, uh, a setup where uh, it doesn't necessarily close off the doors to large tracts of the economy. We need to break the credentialing cartel um, a mm. little bit. And, and I'm optimistic that we will. Now, if he goes into technology, um, I would say if you know he's a really good coder like I was, you can just get a job and right, go into yeah. that. The, the, the software engineering world is still one. It's actually becoming much more credential driven. But it's still one where you can go in there without it. You could start a business. There are things you can do, but I want to dramatically expand the solution set of possibilities for people who yeah. don't get traditional degrees uh, because it's it's just not working. And right. I think that's that's kind of part of the situation of our society today. We have a lot of structures set up that essentially mandate that you do certain things like go to college. And yet for large numbers of people, that produces failure. And when this happens, that's what leads a lot of people into things like, you know, the DSA, for example, uh, you know, becoming becoming very interested in being a Bernie supporter because it's like I've got all this student loan debt. I aspire to live in these cities and I can't actually get a good job that's using using my degree. I feel like I've been used and they're, and they're quite right. 
Yeah. And so we nah. created, we've, we've created these structures in which large numbers of people fail, essentially, at some of the core tasks of life. And we need to have structures that support uh, the vast majority of people being able to navigate that successfully. And so one of the things I try to do with the masculine is just give different ways to think about the world and how to live in it so that people can help themselves navigate through this uh, through this situation. Now, it's challenging because um, you know, obviously I draw. It's a very intellectual newsletter. And I'm, I'm going to start blogging a lot more, so I'll have much more, I think, a, a broader market. Uh, I got to think 98% of your readers are male. I, I, am I? Am I? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I have quite a few males, but I think almost all of my readers are college degreed type people. Probably went to to good schools. A lot of them are very professionally successful, and a lot of the people in that segment have mostly done well in our society. But I target that segment. Uh, more so than, say, the working class segment in my writing, one, because I can relate better to it, but also because our society is run by that group of people. Yeah. You know, the working class Americans have essentially zero political power or structural power in our society. And so, um, you know, they can they can make protest votes, et cetera. But ultimately, the I think the, the structures of society, the character of a society is determined and driven by the character of the elites. And my thesis is very simply that I think the American elites have really done a terrible job um, in running our country uh, for a while now. And we need to have some serious reforms uh, if we're ever gonna have anything go go better. Now, again, reforming society is not my mission, but I do wanna kind of equip people in the church to well, navigate the situation better personally and help churches start thinking about structures in which not just men, but, you know, we, you know, whole families and people can thrive better in this kind of degree of difficulty yeah. high world. And let, let's dive in on that for a bit. I want to I hop back to something you said a little while ago, uh, talking about Jordan Peterson and these people who are talking about masculinity uh, kind of in culture. And specifically relating to the church, why do you feel like the Jordan Petersons are attracting more men than the church today? Well, first we have to start with the fact that the church has long, maybe even always, skewed female. So this idea that somehow the church has lost its way on men, I don't think there's necessarily anything new about the fact that the church has not um, attracted men. And I, I really go back to at least the year 1800 for that. And the main, the main reason I do that is because I do think a lot of the challenges that we have today on these things are the result of the Industrial Revolution. That kind of shaped how the church really structured its ministries. But I don't think that the church's issues are things that have been, um, you, you know, th- that's not new. I think what is new is all of these kind of gurus out there that are very specifically targeting men in the secular world and having a lot of success at it. If you look at some of the traditional, maybe even going back to the 30s, there's been this sort of self-help, self-improvement guru concept. You could think about something like Dale Carnegie, right? How to win friends and influence people. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, great uh, liberal preacher of uh, the great champion of liberal Christianity, Harry Emerson Fosdick, 
wrote a book called On Being a Real Person, this uh, sort of a psychology, Christian psychology. Uh, you can also think of Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking, uh, and you, or, or L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics. And that goes through all the way to the modern age with somebody like Anthony Robbins, you know, the, the uh, Awaken the Giant Within, Walk on the Coals, et cetera. I don't know the exact gender skews of those people, but my impression is that they draw large numbers of women as well as men. I mean, the people I know who are most into Anthony Robbins are female. And uh, I think what's unique about some of these new people is that they really specifically appeal to men and they're appealing to men in the name of some sort of self-improvement or, you know, I'm not sure the right word. You can say aspirational excellence or something like that. I hesitate to use that because a lot of what they define as kind of aspirational excellence, uh, excellence is in fact not virtuous at all in the Christian sense could be very evil, but it's not necessarily just hedonism. It's not just, you know, but like in the 19th century, one of the regions the church was very negative towards men is because the men in these factories got out, they were severe alcoholics, they were gambling, they were getting in fights. And this is why the temperance movement started, for example. It's not, Jordan Peterson is not advocating that you become you know, some kind of like, uh, you know, just a drunkard hanging out at the bar with your friends, you know, watching football on the weekend. He's actually creating some kind of a vision of, um, you know, how to live your life right. uh, with some sort of moral integrity, kind of as he defines it. And so I, I think it's very interesting that, that those people are doing that. And one of the things that they, they do, I think, is they start from the standpoint of, uh, I'm actually here for men to care about you, yes, to challenge you, but also to build you up. So I was, I was going to ask, do you, th- do you think that is the main draw, that men feel like they have someone in their corner finally? Yeah, I think that's one of the things. It's like, you know, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to tell you how horrible you are and how you just need to man up. I'm going to actually encourage you. I'm going to give you a vision of how you can live your life. Yes, I might challenge you on that, but I'm also going to give you like practical things you can do to start making progress on that. Jordan Peterson's um, big line was it clean your room, bucko. And that's sort of a a metaphor. He's saying that metaphorically uh, about taking care of your own business before you want to extend yourself out into the world. Mm -hmm. But there's also an element in which that works literally. Your room may well be very messy. Your house may not be clean. If, if you're a young guy living by yourself, maybe there's pizza boxes everywhere, you know, empty beer cans. Take some, you know, pride in your place, right? Show some concern about the way your physical appearance. You know, the, you know another one, and again, this guy, I, I, I don't think he specifically appealed to men, but it was very similar. It was this uh, Navy SEAL Admiral William McRaven uh, gave a very famous commencement address that was viewed millions of times on YouTube. And he had turned it into a book and his dictum was make your bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every morning you get up, you got to make your bed. Again, there's a, a, a metaphor to that, but there's also a literalism to it. One of the things that I actually did personally, I'm like, I'm trying to become better as a man. I feel like I've failed in a lot of ways. I wanted to establish a morning routine. And one of the things I literally did was I'm going to make my bed every morning. Even though I'm single and I'm living by myself and 
There's no necessary reason for me to make my bed. I'm going to make my bed. That's something I'm going to start doing as a physical process. Yeah. And it gives you a very simple win in a practical sense. Here's the on-ramp to getting better. Start by making your bed. Start by cleaning your room. And again, a lot of what Jordan Peterson says is, in a, is partially metaphorical, but it's also, again, something you can do to liberal, literally. Stand up straight with your shoulders back, I think is one of his 12 rules for life. In, you know, working on improving your posture. I think because I grew up next to a cow pasture and was always staring at the ground <laughs> to make sure I was watching where I stepped. <laughs> I, I, I had terrible, terrible, terrible posture for a very long time. And my posture is still not great. I've made some improvements. And so thinking about little things like that, I think giving people practical, tangible, quick wins uh, is something that can make you feel good. When you see that your bed is made every day, when you see that you live in a clean house, you can see that you have a sense of accomplishment. Which is, yeah, and men, and men need that to thrive. Yeah. I think the other thing, these, these, uh, this group of uh, you know, online Christian blogs called, uh, not Christian blogs, uh, men's blogs called the Manosphere. There are some Christian women in it, but it's mostly dominated by pickup artist types. They also have tons and tons and tons of practical, actionable information. Here's what you should do in this situation. Here's what you can do there. And I think this idea of being very practical, um, and it gives, you gotta give people an on-ramp to, to, to a lot of things. And so I think they've done that. That's one of the things they've done that. Another thing you'll notice about these um, men's gurus is they create situations in which they can demonstrate their own kind of manhood or masculinity. And usually they do it by generating some form of conflict. One of the things that really sent Jordan Peterson rocketing was when he did that famous interview with Channel 4 in England. And this woman was pushing on him with kind of feminist talking points. And he was very calm. He just stood his ground. He's like, I'm not surrendering to your frame. I'm standing firm where I am. I'm not crumbling. I'm not submitting to your frame. When that was first posted, the comments were piling up thousands by the minute. Yeah. Yeah. Another guy who does that um, really well, he doesn't do it so much anymore because I think he's gotten so big now, was Ben Shapiro. You know, Ben Shapiro is more of a, um, a political commentator, but, and, but he's got a big following among young men, teenage men, college men, et cetera. And one of the things that he used to do was go onto these college campuses and make talks on college campuses where he knew there were going to be protests. He knew there was going to be a big controversy. And he's like, I'm going into the lion's den. I'm going to show you that I'm going to walk into that crowd. And, you know, I think there's even videos out there of him, like surrounded by like crowds of protesters and stuff and such doing these things that helps credentialize him. And again, I think likely in, in some of these cases, there's a controlled conflict there. It's not necessarily that there's just some wild street battle or something that just happened, but you, you often see this. These people put them into situations where they can demonstrate behaviors that credentialize them for other men. Well, and yeah, and you got young guys, I think, in droves looking at the, get these guys. They're attracted to the courage 
that they observe in these guys, regardless of the message, they just admire the courage. They want to lean into that and say, man, this guy is saying something I wish I would have had the balls to say. Definitely that that living vicariously through people who are willing to put themselves out there um, in in a powerful way. I do think men need to be very careful in emulating a lot of these folks. Um, you know, you, you don't know who these people are necessarily online. Um, you know, some of these guys, for example, are independently wealthy. So once you're rich, you can take a lot more risk than yeah, if like, you, yeah. you know you're dependent on your job. And that was one of the things Nassim Taleb said is anti-fragile because you want to combine. He calls it the barbell model. You want to combine playing it safe on the one on the one end with taking risks with big upside on the other end. But if you don't have the safety and you just take the big risks, then you know, you're really exposing yourself to that. So a lot, if you don't have like money, sometimes you just don't know who these people are, what their financial model is. So I think it it is really important to be careful about just replicating the behaviors some of these people do when you don't necessarily have full insight into what's going on in their lives. Yeah. I want to circle back uh, specifically to, you know, young Christian guys in particular, a lot of our listeners are, you know, young Christian guys. They aspire to godly masculine manhood. They're aged 18 to 35. I, I loved one of the things I read in The Masculinist. You were talking about uh, declining grip strength in teen boys, the fact that the average 20-year-old male is now physically weaker than his father in large swaths. And, you know, the, the fact that uh, there's been a feminization of the modern man. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the feminization of the young Christian man. But first off, what do you mean by that, by that description, feminization of the, the young modern man? You know, I don't know that I uh, talk as much directly about feminization. I mean, I, I don't, as much as some other guys do, associate masculinity with kind of like manly man behaviors like bow hunting deer and shooting, you know, <laughs> shooting guns out the woods. You just offended all of our bow hunting listeners. I don't disparage that by any means. Uh, But when we start talking about feminization, what does that really mean? I do think, though, if you look at it, uh, again, the studies and all that vary. Grip strength is in decline. And grip strength is a very good indicator of overall bodily strength and actually correlates with a lot of health outcomes. Secondly, testosterone levels have been in decline. Third, sperm counts are in decline. Uh, and so I I think Newsweek magazine actually did a big cover story called sperm count zero or something like that. And so there have been essentially declines in some of the biological markers of manhood. There's also been obviously tremendous increase in obesity. This doesn't just affect men, this affects women as well, but certainly, uh, you know, being, being very overweight, uh, can be, can be a problem. So I do think these things have happened why they've happened is not at all obvious to me. I don't think there's like a good answer. Um, but I, I think these things have been have been happening. Aaron, I, I, I hear everything you're saying and I agree because it's what I see. It's what I see out there in the world. It's what I see as I mentor young men. I see Jordan Peterson attracting more guys than the church in a lot of instances. What, what can the church do to attract men? Because, you know, even like I even read some of you were talking about Matt Chandler, some of what you said I saw in, in some of the masculinist newsletters talking about, you know, the right route is not berating men, yeah. 
when they come to church for X, Y, and Z. That That's definitely not what some of these guys out in the secular world, pickup artists, et cetera, are doing. They're not berating guys. And, and that's, that's not how you change a man anyway. That's not how you influence him. But what can the church do to attract young men in particular? Yeah, the, the berating concept, I think, comes because there's this view that, you know, like Marine Corps boot camp, you know, men respond well to being sort of, you know, directly in your face challenged. And that's true. Uh, but in Marine Corps boot camp, they don't just tear you down. They also build you back up. And so I think the building back up uh, is is often the, the missing element of that. I don't pretend to have the answer that says, if you follow this formula, you will attract men. And I'm a little hesitant to even um, try to come up with a methodology, if you will. I think a lot of the challenges that we've had uh, as a church is we've become very methodology driven. You know, the, the, uh, back in the 70s, I think it was when they developed this kind of seeker sensitive movement, it almost became like a packaged methodology. And it is sort of a packaged methodology. If you want to start a church, you know, you can sort of buy the plan for how you do that, it's proven, et cetera. It doesn't mean it'll, it'll change, but if you want to get people in the door, here's all the techniques that you use. The challenge is that those techniques tend to be generational. They tend to work in certain environments. They don't work in others. Um, I was talking with uh, some, some, a person from uh, Jesus People USA, which is an old uh, intentional community uh, in, in Chicago. And they used to talk about, hey, back in the day, we did a lot of street evangelism because street evangelism worked kind of in the Jesus movement era. Street evangelism doesn't work anymore. So we're not doing that anymore. And so, you know, we could say that like the way to reach people for Christ is street evangelism, which was something that worked at one period of time, uh, but doesn't necessarily work today. And so I think when we start looking at methods of reaching people, we start aligning a lot with um, a lot with sort of secular uh, marketing views of the world, which I'm a little hesitant to do. What I would just say is, uh, apart from whether it attracts men or doesn't attract men or whatever, the first thing we need to do is discern and speak the truth. I think that's very important. And I think a lot of the things that these guys are teaching are just not accurate. And uh, that's, the, that's the root of the problem right there uh, for, the, for the first step. So I think we have to have the truth in place first as the foundation. And then we can worry, I think, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, coming after that, how do we attract based on that truth? But right now, I don't think we necessarily even have the right facts out there. Uh, I think there's, there's a, we're out of true. And I don't, when I say it's not true, I don't mean that they're standing up there lying or something like that. They're just saying maybe the talking points that they've heard from other people. Maybe there's just, you know, you're, we're kind of naively doing things. I think we all do that, right? We, we get into something and we're saying something and they later like, oh, that wasn't accurate. So I would say it's, it's not accurate, uh, but we need to become accurate. That's our first step. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I, I actually attend a church in Phoenix, Arizona. And man, the reason I joined this church because, was because it struck me as masculine. And, you know, I, I agree with you. There's no one formula or sort of, you know, franchise disclosure document, you know, follow this and and you'll have a successful church in terms of reaching men. But 
it, it was so interesting because I walk in and they have they have NBA TV and NFL Network on in the lobby. <laughs> they've got they've got men in NFL jerseys. You know, every Sunday in the falls, it you know it, it, there are football games going on nationwide and. You walk in and you feel in a lot of ways like this is a, a tailgate. This, this is a place where men can be comfortable. I go through the membership class and they talk overtly, speaking of telling the truth, they talk overtly about how when men do well, everyone does well. Kids do well, women do well in society, in the church. This is in the membership class. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I wonder what other people think going through this class. They talk about how they choose the color of the carpet, the the songs. Can men sing along with this song or is the pitch too high? They literally go through that grid for everything because they intentionally want to overmanage reaching men. And I got to tell you, I fell in love with it. I, I wanted to be where I could invite other men and influence other men. So I, I agree with you. I don't think there's some sort of uh, methodology that works every time. But I could tell these guys were at least thinking about it and putting those things into practice. And it is going to take intentionality to, to that point. Like it can't, it's not just going to happen like all of a sudden we'll see men just start flocking back to the church. Like it's yeah, going to take and to Aaron's point, Aaron, what you were saying about speaking the truth, I think the leaders of this church were willing to say, we, we can go off of what worked 30 years ago, but let's actually deal in reality. What, what are men actually going to be attracted to? This is one where, you know, maybe I'm a little bit different than than some others in that I kind of like the idea that there are kind of different denominations and different kinds of churches in that we live in such a diverse society, um, you know, racially diverse, um, you know, class diversity, personality diversity, diversity of interest. I don't think that like there's going to be a one size fits all approach. And again, I want to be a little cautious because it sounds like a classic corporate, you know, customer segmentation. We'll figure out how to reach the guys who respond to NFL and NBA on in the lobby. Um, And so I do think we need to avoid becoming too sort of marketing driven. But there is a sense in which some people are going to be attracted to different sorts of styles. I like traditional hymns. So I'm not as impressed with the... um, you know, the modern worship music. And I don't necessarily make that a deal breaker. I'm not looking for the totally consumerist model that has to be there for me. But I think there's an element of like, there are kind of different styles that are going to work with different people. So it's good that churches kind of have a particular, you know, group of people that they're very good at reaching. We just don't want to become over prescriptive because there may be different groups of people who respond to very different kind of, of messages, you know. Yeah, and ultimately the church has to be willing to say, well, it can't be the church saying, hey, men, make sure you like adopt to our church because this is the way you have to do church. And on a certain level, there's going to have to be an effort of, hey, what are we doing to reach men? Because I think all three of us would agree that it's super important for the church to have men in it. We can't just expect that to happen if we don't change anything because clearly men are not flocking to it right now. Now, let me give you a, a next level piece of analysis here. Um, that thing you said earlier where society thrives if men do well, there's something to that. I think there's a lot of truth in what's said there. This is one of the messages that you often hear. You know, if you if the you probably heard that there was a study done, I think it was in Switzerland, that if the mother attends church, you know, it's it's not as likely 
that the rest of the family would, you know, the kids will attend church than if the father attends church. They're like the father being a practicing Christian plays a very large role in, you know, whether the rest of the family will become Christian. And there's probably some truth to that. But I like to be very careful. I mean, I'm sort of like these other guys, and I like to be very intentional about language, that we don't end up treating men as a means instead of an end. By that, I mean, we don't want to treat men as a mechanism of reaching the wife and kids or as a mechanism of making them worth better. I'm reaching men because I want to make the world better. One of the things that guys like, I think, Jordan Peterson and them do a very good job of is making the man himself the focus, treating him like, you know, an end, you know, here's the object. I'm here to help you. I'm not trying to help you because I'm trying to help someone else or because I think it will make society better. He may believe that, but you get a better sense that he cares about you kind of on your own merits. And so that's one that I personally like to be very careful about how we talk about it when we're trying to make the case for uh, reaching men. I I first and foremost think we should want to reach men because there are a lot of men who are lost (laughs) and need our help. Um, But that doesn't mean that reaching them won't actually have beneficial follow-on effects. If you're a man and you're looking at yourself, you're a young 20-something-year-old man, do you have a mission in life that you're working for? Say, this is what God has put on my heart. This is the mission that I'm looking for. And I'm looking to have a marriage and have, you know, a church community life that helps, you know, empower mission, as opposed to my mission is essentially serving my wife and kids. I do think in a lot of these churches, they equate your mission with your wife and kids. And you even explicitly see this in some of these marriage books. They'll create a false dichotomy saying like, do you want to serve yourself or do you want to serve your family? And as if those are the only two options in the entire world. And I like to use the example of uh, Tim Keller going to start Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. He's sitting in Philadelphia. He's got this offer to do it. It's very risky. Uh, you know, New York was kind of a war zone at that time. He had three kids. His wife wasn't necessarily fully on board. And he decided, you know, I'm going in. And I say, did he do that in order to please his, his wife or to please himself? I think the answer is neither. I think he saw this opportunity and he did it in the service of mission. And so I think that's a great example of saying, I'm going to be on mission and live my life in the service of mission. And my wife and I are coming together around that mission, uh, as opposed to, to looking at a very inwardly, interiorly focused family unit. Aaron, I wish we had all day with you. I'm going to go back and listen to this and begin to apply some of it to my own life. Uh, one of the things we do with every guest that we have is we end with a question. What would you say to your 21-year-old self? Well, my 21-year-old self was very much a wreck. And I'm someone who essentially lived a very self-oriented, uh, godless life. And so I, I hate to take the very prosaic, maybe the easy answer, but I'd say, you know, you have to be uh, surrendered to Jesus Christ in your life and not be on this path that you're on. If I'd done that and I've lived a godly life, I would have saved myself a lot of pain. 
I find nothing cliche about that answer. I love that, man. Man, Aaron, thank you so much for being with us. I think you know this already, but you are on the endangered species list. You're a godly man in our culture. We're extremely grateful for you. Thanks for being here, bud. Thanks for having me. Members of the herd, if you're like me, you believe that godly men come in all personalities and professions. I have always wanted for that reason to interview a successful godly man style artist. Well, I got my chance this last week when we were lucky enough to attract Salt Lake City's Tim Sears. The secret is out on Tim, I'll tell you that. He's a phenomenal painter and now people know it. You're gonna wanna hear Tim's fresh and manly thoughts on God and art, very unique. Again, you can find Aaron Wren's manifying written content at themasculinist.com and his podcast by the same name, The Masculinist Podcast. Both of these guys truly are on the endangered species list. As always, please give us a rate on Apple Podcasts as it helps spread the word. Gentlemen, becoming and staying a godly man is a matter of choice, not chance. Go out today and make the choice to take steps toward manhood. Let's get the godly man off the endangered species list. Galactic thanks to our legendary producer, Logan Bonjean. We'll see you next Friday. Cheers.